Alright guys, welcome to a very special episode of The Theory. Today we have the long-awaited Rendlesham Forest UFO Incident Interview with Jim Penniston, author of The Rendlesham Enigma. Um, we'll post the links to his book in the description of this video so you guys can find it for yourself. And as always, today's video is brought to you by CreepyTTT.com and The Graveyard Goons. We'll post their links in the description as well. But let's go ahead and jump into this. So everybody, welcome to The Theory. Today we have special guest, retired U.S. Air Force Sergeant Jim Penniston, author of The Rendlesham Enigma. Jim, how you doing today? Jim, I'm doing great. Uh, nice talking to you, Mike. Yeah, 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 for sure. So um, we're going to start off kind of slow, and then we'll we'll work our way to the to the big stuff. Um, what was life like for a young Jim Penniston before the military, Rendlesham, and everything like that? Uh, normal. Uh, I mean, I was raised uh, in southern Wisconsin, I a little town of 800 people, uh, moved around a little bit, uh, and uh, finally moved to a town that had 26,000 people, which was, you know, fairly large in northern Illinois, and, uh, you know, it's mostly rural, and, uh, you, know, you know, I don't, I don't think I see my first city until I was like 11 or 12, you know. Alright, that's not so, too bad. Yeah, it was just, no, well, it was pretty normal. Uh, matter of fact, it was, uh, you know, Vietnam was on a time and uh, so there wasn't, you know, you sort of had your, your, um, your future laid out for you. If you weren't going to go to college right away, you're probably going to go ahead and get drafted or something like that. And, uh, you know, so, or anyway, it, it's probably going to be in the military. And so I did sort of think that, well, if I'm going to the military, I'm going to go in the Navy or, or the Air Force. <laughs> I said, there's no way I'm going to, you know, pound ground. I'm yeah, no, no boots on the ground. We'll, we'll work from the back. Yeah. Understandable, understandable. Um, so what, when, uh, how old were you when you joined the military? Uh, 18. 18. 18. I, I was right, right out of school. Yeah, right out of high school. Uh, I was out two months. Uh, a friend of mine said, I went to school with him. He says, yeah, let's go enlist. I said, no, 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 no. He says, we're going to enlist in the Air Force. And he said, we're going to buddy program. I go, what's that? And he said, well, we stay together in basic training. And I said, okay. So I enlisted, and that was the start of it. How, uh, how long were you in the military before they actually – because I've read – you have a pretty extensive military background. Um, how long was it before they actually moved you over to England to the, the Rendlesham base? Uh, okay, these are good questions. I gotta think. <laughs> I'm trying, um, I'm Yeah, uh, well, let's see. I went the first time to England in 75, and that was to RAF Elkenbury uh, over by Huntington in Cambridge, England. Uh, they had uh, reconnaissance planes there, stuff like that, F-4s, and so I had two years there, uh, 75 to 77, then I came back to the States uh, for three years, and uh, left in the summer of uh, June of 1980, okay. uh, back to, you know, go to Bentwaters. All right. So then 1980 comes around, December of 1980 to be specific, and the well-known, as we all know, Rendlesham UFO incident happened. What, uh, what was the day like leading up to, to the evening when all of that happened? Was it pretty normal operations, nothing, nothing serious going on? 
No, it was pretty quiet because, you know, it was the holidays and stuff, and uh, uh, they weren't doing flying missions or anything like that, so that, that, that makes it a lot more quiet. There weren't uh, uh, normal maintenance being done. I mean, uh, so that it's was sort of nice. quieter than normal. It was quieter than normal, and, uh, you know, but my shift started out the same way uh as usual i mean i had my routine i had to do that night uh, we i would alternate from uh working at bentwaters and then my squad would be working at uh, uh woodbridge and it was our it was our turn to work woodbridge and so uh, yeah you know it started out with a lighting check that's something routine after we post everybody on the on their posts and stuff uh, I done that a few a few other things like that. Checked some buildings. I had to check uh, some structures. Uh, went and visited my uh, security alert teams, uh, my alarm response teams in the restricted areas. Uh, so just asking if there's any problems because I I wanted to make sure there wasn't any before we started making your rounds. Yeah, you know, and uh, and you know we had a couple new guys that were. Uh, uh, working that night there first so we put them with the security response team and stuff like that um, just to let you know at that time in the Air Force security police we, we didn't allow women in the career field so right. when, I, when I'm only talking about guys it's because that's all there was is guys in yeah, security yeah. police that makes perfect sense uh, yeah the other thing that uh, is uh, they confuse uh, a lot with uh, the security police is that you think it's one career field and it's not, it's two career fields. I mean, uh, my career field was, you know, doing priority A, B, C resources, base defense, stuff like that, uh, priority um, uh, resource areas. And then there was another branch that was separate was law enforcement. And they did like gate guard duty and uh, respond to maybe a, uh, domestic issue or something like that that's what yeah, they like, did like military police you'd see on a base here in the u.s that's right that's right okay. and uh yeah so you know uh, as far as uh you know the the uh opera you know security operation at base that was strictly us okay so so uh what what um walk us through rendlesham the the, the big event that happened uh we'll start from the beginning how what brought on the the call or the the sighting that that started all of this well uh well i i find all this out a long time afterwards okay i mean years i mean i didn't know everything that had happened prior yeah but uh what it, what it happened from from uh, what i remember is that uh uh, I had set up arrangements with the security response team leader, who was Sergeant McCauley, uh, to we're going to catch an early midnight chow, you know, and then uh, have that out of the way. And so I was going to meet him at Chow Hall, and that's on Woodbridge Base, by the way. And so I met him there, and I'm, I'm just getting my cup of coffee, and I had already put my gun in the rack, and. <laughs> And here, um, I called him Mac. And Mac, I says, he says, uh, they're trying to get a hold of you on the radio. And I said, oh, really? He says, yeah, they want you at 1012. Uh, phone that office. Phone Central Security Control. And I said, okay. So uh, I went over there, and then we had a direct line. 
And I picked it up, and uh, it was Sergeant uh, Coffee. He was the senior controller at Bentwaters. He says, uh, Jim, we need you to go to the East Gate, he says, because uh, we have a situation out there. Oh, really? Because usually if they're calling security, it's not good. It's, oh, it's I a probably problem. caught you off guard at, at the yeah. everything quieter. Uh, I, I wouldn't expect yeah. to call that. Yeah, so, you know, Mike, my next question is, okay, what what's going on? <laughs> Yeah. They'll brief you when they get out there, the two law enforcement people. I'm thinking law enforcement, okay. Uh, so I said, where do you want, want me? And they said, go to the East Gate. They'll uh, rendezvous with police, I think it was police two and police four, whatever their call signs were. Uh, it was uh, uh, Staff Sergeant Steffens and uh, Aaron Burroughs. And I said, okay. And he says, uh, go ahead and run code too. That's running with your lights. So he's like, that means they want me there right away. Yes. Yeah, uh, so it takes uh, it takes about uh, at, at, you know emergency response is you know forty miles an hour down the flight line to the back roads, and so it took me only about two or three minutes to get there. It was probably around midnight, right around like midnight, a couple of minutes after, and I arrived there and I contacted Sergeant Stephan, the senior law enforcement guy, and I said. Bud, I says, uh, that's his first name, Bud. And I says, uh, what's going on? Because it's obvious there's no danger or anything going on there. I mean, there was no security situation I could see. Yeah. And he just points over to the uh, Reynolds Forest area. And, you know, you can see, you know, a dome of light over the forest canopy. And you could see multiple color lights, you know, in the woods. And this is about... It's like it's it's a ways. I mean, it's probably about 300 yards. Okay. And I'm, go, I'm going. What is it? And he goes. And he goes. Uh, he said, "Do you see it?" And I go, "Yeah." I said, and I'm thinking, well, that sort of looks like an aircraft downing crash. And I said, "Did it crash?" And he goes, "No." He said, it "Landed." And I'm thinking, "There's no way it can land in Reynolds." Reynoldson Forest, uh, the trees are planted like five, six feet apart. I mean, there's yeah, just impossible. A, you know, no space yeah. for it. There's no way for anything to land there. And uh, well, conventional aircraft, that is, uh, or helicopter or anything like that. And uh, I tried to get him to say it crashed, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't buy, buy into it. Well, you would so hear it. I wanna... imagine you would hear the crash if, if an aircraft crashed into a forest with trees like that. You would hear something. Uh, yeah, you'd, there's a lot of things that would be, uh, you know, you could probably smell it too, and everything else, yeah. you know, the burning. Of... And um, so I didn't. I thought that you know that was a possibility. So I go to the East Gate. It's just a gate check for the guard, and but it's got a direct line to law enforcement desk. Who, by the way, was once I arrived, it's now a security uh, operation. I mean, it's no longer law enforcement. And I get, I contact uh, uh, law enforcement desk and it patched me through to, you know, central security control. And they said, okay. And from that point on, I talked to Sergeant Coffee and Sergeant. Well, let me set the stage. When, when I, when I first contacted him, there's like five people on the line at the same time, okay, at Central Security Control. There's the flight lieutenant, the flight sergeant, the 
the security controller, the comm plotter. I mean, there's quite a few people there. And so uh, there are most all are listening. I'm talking to one. And I'm telling you a lot of detail, by the way. Um, I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, more so that was in, than in the book, I think. And um, anyway, I, I told him, I says, well, there seems to be something crashed. I says, in the uh, adjacent to the East Gate, about, you know, 250, 300 yards away in uh, the forest there. And I'm talking to Coffee and I'm talking to Chandler. He's a flight sergeant. And he says, well, you, did you hear anything? No, no. And I says, I says, Stephens, he said it landed, though. <laughs> and, you know, everybody got a little giggle out of that. I mean, there's nothing to land there. They're completely and, confused. And, yeah, then Sergeant Dillard came on the line. He was, he was a comptroller. And he says, uh, he was in touch at the time, unbeknownst to me, with the radars. London radar, Eastern radar, which is British, and Bentwater's radar. And uh, he says uh, they lost contact with a, uh, a bogey about 15 minutes ago over Woodbridge Base. That's an unidentified aircraft. And it's probably military because uh, it doesn't have a transponder on like a civilian aircraft would have. So all they would have is a of the object and uh, he says anyway they lost contact about 15 minutes ago over the base oh it, real quick, there's the emergency situation is Rendlesham a no-fly zone is that a no-fly zone base at the time yeah okay so yeah, Rendl so no uh, not, Rendl something. not Rendlesham but that water is no fly and uh, I mean, outside of the U.S. Air Force, I mean, yeah, it's okay. not a good idea to fly airplane over there. Okay. No, I figured, would, but that, I just wanted to be sure. No, 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 that, no, you would have had a lot of friends come over <laughs> this class. Yeah, that's, that wouldn't have been a good idea. No, it, as far as like civilian aircraft or uh, uh, like a Piper Cub or stuff like that, no, 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 none of that stuff. Okay. Anyway, so, um, we had to have an emergency situation, otherwise we couldn't deploy off base technically, okay? Under the status of forces agreement, which is SOFA, uh, we had this agreement we had with the Brits. Uh, and uh, so, but having an emergency situation gave us permission on the SOFA, under our agreement. And in the meantime, uh, the flight lieutenant, uh, Moran, first lieutenant, he uh, contacted uh, the wing command post, which is our main control center for the whole wing, and um, uh, through the wing command post, talked to Colonel Conrad, the base commander, and got permission to obviously go off base to investigate. Well, yeah, yeah, my job was going to be for an aircraft crash is to uh, set up an inter-control point uh, for uh, first responders, you know, uh, uh, usually on a crash, uh, you, you, you did get have a medic, not always, but you did have medical go out there, but it was definitely going to be fire department, mortuary affairs, stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, we had a lot of aircraft crash, uh, not exactly at that base, but from that base, like over the North Sea and training exercise. I mean, uh, up to that point in time. I probably had been to 
20 plus aircraft crashes myself okay. you know yeah so it's, well it's a lot i mean yeah, from yeah. fighter aircraft to uh you know uh, uh c-141s to whatever they were yeah and uh yeah so you know uh, and that's the other thing the coloring in the woods had the appearance of you know an aircraft burning like you know titanium and stuff you know and uh so anyway the emergency situation existed uh we got permission from colonel conrad the base commander to deploy off base the lieutenant told me to take two guys with me i wanted security with me because that would work really well for me yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, yeah I, well those guys there i don't have to spoon feed you know and um he says no he says uh he says uh take the uh the law enforcement airmen and um the security airman that was first night of duty, Airman Kabanzak, from the security response team. So I did. And poor guy, I mean, his first night, he was pretty rough. But the point is, he still knew what to do from his training. Yeah. Um, and I was going to, I had a radio, uh, IBR, interbase radio, and so did Kabanzak. Uh, Burles didn't have a radio. Um, anyway, I was going to use Kabanzak for the entry control point. I had already got that plotted, got the crash kit uh, out, the plotting board, uh, the camera, you know, for evidence of yeah. crash. Mainly, uh, especially if there's classified or some components or something. And um, so I had that stuff broken out. I knew I was going to set up the control point. I started driving out there with the th with uh, the other two, um, and I had a CJ5. That's what the Air Force bought for us at the time. Um, so it was pretty good at going over these these earthen berms. What it was is the forest. Just to give you a background on the forest. They treated it like a crop. The Brits did. Uh, they would go ahead and let it, you know, the trees grow 20, 30 feet up, the Corsica pines, and okay. then they cut them. That's and then they'd like replant. Oregon. That's what they do here in Oregon with oh. a lot of the forests and stuff. Well, yeah, you, you know, but they're probably ahead of Oregon. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't yeah. know. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. 1980, I mean, that, well, we have a lot of land. <clears throat> so, anyway, they, they uh, replenished the forest. Um, and uh, so these earthen berms are there. So I made it over a, quite a few, and there, it was clear um, uh, for about 150 yards. It was just open berms. And I made it as far as I could, and I was thinking, well, the emergency response vehicles aren't going to get much past where I'm at. So I said, okay, this is the entry control point. So I had Kabanzak sit there. I said, I want you, and our radios were starting to break up. Which I could not understand either, because yeah. we had um, we had repeaters all over the twin bases, and so there's no way you could have a breakdown on the radios. Yeah. And but I was having it, and uh, I said, okay, I want you to relay anything I say back to the East Gate. Sergeant Chandler's on his way there, and um, uh, Cabanza said he would, and I took the uh, law enforcement guy with me because I wanted to watch him. Um, you know, who knows, I could have them do, do some kind of menial labor or something there. Yeah. 
And um, so we proceeded. Uh, and at that time where the entry control point was, I would say it was maybe hmm, 40, 50 uh, yards to the edge of the forest. That's how where the, we were at. We made it up to the, you know, the forest. So, you know, as we started getting up there closer, I could see um, those multiple color lights were more blended, and it turned into more you know, of a white, brighter light, and it was starting to dissipate in the woods. So, well, um, as I entered the forest. I had Cabansack, who was at the intercontrol point about 40, 50 yards away. I had law enforcement guy about 20 yards this way uh, behind me to my right. Made it into the forest, and as I said, the light was dissipating, and it was, and it was definitely behind a berm. And um, then there was a bright flash of light. Uh, out of reaction, hit the ground. Uh, yeah. but there's no noise. There's no <laughs> explosion or nothing like that. It just this, this bright white lights there. Probably expecting an explosion with it. The, the light to burst I, out. Like I that. think, yeah, it's just reaction you hit the ground. You know, I mean, yeah. uh, you know, you, you know, I, that's the only thing I, yeah, I think it was reactive. What I did, I got back up and alive. And I, so I said, well, the, what the hell was that? You know, uh, um, and you could feel at that point in time, you could feel electricity on, you know, on the face, skin, hair, clothing, uh, static type of electricity. Did, did you have the feeling at this point that, that something's off, something's not right here. It doesn't fit anything I'm, I'm used to seeing with aircraft crashes or anything else. Did you have that feeling yet? Yeah. And in chapter two, or chapter three, you're going to find that I initiated, all of a sudden I terminated the um, aircraft crash. I terminated that on the radio. I says, uh, no to aircraft crash. I says, be advised, I'm implementing, I'm implementing a helping hand situation. That's our code word for a security situation of a possible hostile, uh, you know, intent, you know, yeah. so... Yeah, because something, that's something where serious. my mode went. My mode went to it's a security situation. Who knows? It could have been um, any of the threats that we had at the time. We had a lot of them. And um, so uh, I, I heard the acknowledgement from uh, Command Sack. He says, yes, Central Security Control copied that. I said, okay. And... Uh, I find out later, you know, of course, Sergeant Coffey, he does his thing. He s submits it up-channel report to, uh, telephonically, up-channel report to the Wing Command Post. They send one from the Wing Command Post to uh, 3rd Air Force Command Post. 3rd Air Force goes to USAFE, Europe Command Post for U.S. Forces. U.S. Air Forces, Europe sends it to the JCS, which is the Pentagon. All the that's usually the way it would go. Um, of course, I didn't know any of that happened. I just knew that, the, you know, I, I called a, a security situation. Yeah. Uh, so I started walking toward it. I had taken pictures at that point 
up to that point with my camera. It's the old film camera, the Canon A ones. Uh, I had two uh, two rolls. The third, I think there was 36 at the time in a roll. I can't remember. I think that's what it was. Um, so I, I, I depleted that. So I uh, holstered the, the camera and I started uh, as I come up to uh, over coming up over the berm uh, there's more physical stuff going on uh, like uh, one is there's no sound I couldn't hear the breaking of branches or anything like that I couldn't hear farm animals I couldn't hear anything it was just silence I couldn't even hear the wind going through the the pines and uh, that was odd and then uh, as uh, I come up over the berm, I got this bright white light just sitting there in the clearing in the forest, and it starts to dissipate down again. That's a good sign, I'm thinking, you know, dissipating down. At least I'll be able to see what it is. And uh, as it starts to dissipate down, a triangular craft appears in there. Uh, and to the point there was no light, all of a sudden the white light's gone, and there's a triangular craft sitting in front of me above the forest floor, maybe two feet, and uh, I don't know why I'm looking down there. <laughs> just, just to see if it, it might have followed you home. Maybe it's down oh, on the floor down two there. Two feet, yeah, okay. Two, well, I'm just gauging it. Two feet, and um, uh then I can see multiple color lights running through the fabric of the craft, the outer skin of the craft. And uh, these lights are globular in shape, um, sort of disformed, okay? They're, but they look like maybe the size of a pie plate or something like that. And they slow down. And I'm just standing there at that point because I... Shock. I don't know what I'm, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I, I, uh, I was, I went, I had so many emotions going from being scared to inquisitive to uh, in awe. I, I mean, there was all kinds of stuff going on. And finally, the uh, craft, uh, the coloring of it dissipated. And all that's there is a black craft, and a white light was shining underneath it out. So I could see the craft clearly. And, um, as I uh, approached it, it, I mean, I found my, my movements of walking labored. Um, like it would be like you're walking through a waist-high pool of water, okay? That type of laboring, walking. Uh, the closer I got to craft, the more it, it started to dissipate. So now I'm like within two, three feet of it. And this is no aircraft, it's obvious. Um, I continue my security checks on the radio uh, because I hopefully Kabanzak hears them, you know, that I'm okay because I sure in hell don't want to send anybody else out there at the moment. Yeah, uh, yeah. it could be a ruse. You know, I mean, who knows? Uh, well, maybe I, I can't imagine. Seeing something like that, being in the Air Force, knowing what you normally would see for an aircraft crash or just an aircraft landing in general to come across something like that, I can't imagine it, it felt like a very safe area. Well, the, the, to put it really in, in, in perspective here, my prior, I had a prior assignment 
with headquarters uh, SAC at the time at Omaha, Nebraska. I worked elite guard there. We were bodyguards and after the generals and for heads of state. And we also did security for the underground. And, uh, you know, we also provided security for classified briefings. And believe me, with 36 generals, uh, there was a lot of briefings. And, yeah. And, uh, we, you know, when you're standing out there so no one else can listen, you know, we all had top secret clearances because we could hear, but we keep everybody else, uh, you know, away from uh, the briefings. Um, and, of course, you get to look at what they were talking about, the aircraft, the prototypes, the research and development uh, briefings for the next 50 years on the aircraft. And none, of that's, none of that stuff applied. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I knew that this is not a prototype that we have and the Russians are too stupid. Okay. <laughs> no, they are. They don't have nothing. I mean, at the time, uh, just to give you a perspective story on that. We had, a, I don't know, what was it, a MiG-31 or something defect uh, when I was in Germany in 86, 87, I can't remember. Uh, and when it came in, you know, that's, we have procedures, we put it inside a hardened structure and they were going to go ahead and dismantle it and take it back to the States. And so, you know, I'm working security. So I go on down there and I says, Hey, I, I, let me go, I'm going to check the airplane out. <laughs> so I go in and check it out. And inside there, this is God's truth. This plane on the outside looked like an F-15, but inside they had Smith gauges. You know what I'm talking about? Like the gauges that with the dials, that's what they had that's inside that plane. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it was very, there was no technology, I yeah. mean, uh, um, at all. I mean, it had, a, it had a real nice set of engines on it, but that was it. So the Russians lacked a lot of... The technical stuff. Yeah, they okay. Yeah, I think we always said that the Russians are, are scary because uh, we wanted to justify our budgets. I guess that's why. I don't know where, you know, maybe that that's the case. Uh, I'm sh yeah, that's what I think. They do, and anyway, we're at the. I'm at the, the craft, and like I said, uh, I did pop out my notebook. I said, "Well, I don't know if I'm going to survive this. You know, yeah. uh, uh, this is unknown, um, and it's it's operating somehow." And so I got my notebook, and so I'm going to record as much information as I can in case I don't survive it. Uh, so the, my people in my chain of command have something, you know, some information of what happened out here. And it was strictly for that reason. So I started recording what I could. Um, I looked underneath, I said, okay, uh, how is this standing there? Uh, and I could see light come down in three columns underneath the craft and they had made indentions in the ground about uh, you know plate size maybe an inch and a half two inches down almost and, like an energy was holding it up rather than a, a landing gear of anything like that yeah and uh, well at that time we didn't have all that science fiction that they got well today. yeah yeah anti-gravity so you know uh, yeah so i tried to move it the craft because even if you had a Cadillac sitting out there and you try to move the car, it's going to yeah. move a little, it's going to move a little bit, right? Fun. No, this didn't move at all. It was solid. 
I said, wow, you know, that's, that was amazing. So I'm, well, I'll go ahead and pace off the craft. Well, you know, I'm six foot two, and I said, oh, okay, this is about six and a half, seven feet high, I guess. It's uneven terrain. It's sort of hard to uh, judge. So uh, I started to pace it off, and it's about nine feet long. I, had, I didn't have no measuring devices. I only can use, my, like, my stride and stuff like that. Yeah. So uh, my stride's about three feet, so it's about nine feet. Um, and it was completely, uh, you know, it was triangular in shape. Um, I started looking for what uh, a plane needs to fly. It needs to have, you know, like flaps. Uh, it didn't have any of those. It needed to have aerions. It didn't have that. Um, it needed to have intakes and exhausts and... Crew compartments, anything. Yeah, it, none of that. And then the craft uh, wasn't. It was. It was completely smooth, smooth metal of some kind. Um, so I'm jotting down as much as I can. And what I know is this is not in you know in Jane's book of world aircraft. I mean, it's just there's yeah, there's no aircraft. Book. No. Um, but. Uh, as I walked around, and then, of course, you know, had that dorsal fin there, wherever it was, that, that stuck up there pretty high. Um, uh, so as I walked around, I, I see uh, there's some type of writing on it. Oh, thank God. You know, it'll say NASA, experimental, something, you know, some kind of experimental something. I don't know. Even, a, uh, even you know, a sickle. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been okay, yeah. uh, you know, uh, but as I went around, it wasn't in uh, in English or nothing like that. It was, uh, they were like glyphs. Um, they were pictorial, okay? And the only thing I can say, and they're not exactly like this, but I'm going to say it's more like the pictorial stuff in the hydroglyphs of Egypt or something like that. Yeah, they, yeah. They weren't like that, though. Not um, like a specific language or writing but more no uh, right uh they had a they had a prominent one which was a large circle and a triangle that was on top and on the bottom spread out was these other five and pretty fascinating so i i touched from the smoothest the craft was so smooth it felt like glass that's how smooth it was no rivets or anything no, 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 you, no, there's no joints or, you know, where it was, anything that was put together, it was just solid. Do you, do you have, do you have an idea about how thin it might have been from top to bottom? Thin. Yeah, like in the, in a sense of if it's how big it would be in, in like an up and down sense rather than a long oh, on, sense. On, on, on the triangular part that's sticking, or that shape, you mean? Uh-huh. Oh, I would say it's like. Oh, maybe like this. So it's really small. Yeah. It, what is that? Oh, a foot, a foot and a half. Something it wasn't very thick. And um, yeah, I never had anybody ask that question. Thick, thick, uh, thin. I don't know. It was, it was making me making me think. I was I was trying to think about. Uh, I'm trying to get a real good picture in my head. And that was that was one thing I was thinking about was I wonder how thin it was in a sense of like. 
I mean, normally if you had like a car, you got to have it a certain size to be able to fit a motor in it, let alone a person or anything else. So it, it just kind of, I figured that that was a good detail to ask mm. to be able to get a better gauge of it. It is. Excellent. Excellent. Excellent question. Um, of course, I'm running my hand uh, from the smoothness of the craft. And then when I, you know, was running across the symbols on the bottom, um, I guess the best way to describe it, it went from that smooth glass-like feeling to like maybe sandpaper. So that's why I use the term etched in the book because okay. it felt, it felt that way. And so it was rough. And, um, so I continued to, I wrote those down in the book. I put the symbols in there. Uh, um, I think I might've been nervous at that time. I don't know. Excited. I don't know. The emotions, <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, was, yeah, it was, yeah, it wasn't my best moment, and uh, so I continue to walk around, and it's you know it's nine feet on every every side. I mean, but then I said, you know, I I'm gonna go back and check those out because that's the only identification it has, and, yeah, yeah. and I was fascinated by it, and it allowed me to touch the craft and push it and nothing happened so that's a good sign um so i went back around and uh, uh the one that i want that seemed had my curiosity was the one on the above and it was the triangle one with the big circle and the two little circles and so <clears throat> i touched that and when i touched that i get this brilliant bright uh, and for lack of other descriptive words, I'm going to call it light. Okay, but you get the meaning that it's so bright you can't yeah. see. And I'm just like motionless for a, uh, a period of time, and I'm seeing flashes of ones and zeros and stuff, all kinds of bizarre uh, things. And I gained my wits about me. And I just lifted my hand off and stopped. Everything is back. Okay. And here I know it wasn't light because I had my night vision. And night vision, uh, it would take 30 to 40 minutes to gain it after something that bright. I mean, uh, I, so I had my night vision out there. I could still see the craft clearly. And, and of course, it was eliminated from on the bottom. Yeah. And so I was, I had gone back around. I had done more security checks. was calling in on the radio. Uh, and then all of a sudden I see activity with the craft. And it was starting to, you know, have these lights again going through it. I went, well, I, what I thought, I can't say. But yeah, yeah. I, uh, I said, oh, I must have activated something by touching it, you know. Um, I don't know, maybe I just structure a destruct code or right. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't yeah. what, I don't know what so, I So man, you know. I got back about 10 yards, 10 or so, and I got down on the ground. I mean, I'm digging ground. I'm trying to get as low as I can. And I got a berm in front of me. I'm like, well, I hope I survive that. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of exploding, you know, the, the coloring light had obviously disappeared and that white light was generating again from underneath and it had 
moved back through the trees. All right, now, I've already said that those trees are normally five or six feet apart. Yeah. And I measured it at nine feet. Okay. That all makes sense. And this thing's being able to move through them. You shouldn't be able to move back through the trees. And it moved on up to the canopy, made a slight right turn, and was gone in a blink of an eye. And relief. No noise from takeoff or taking off that fast. Just... No air displacement, no sounds, no sonic boom, uh, nothing. It's dead silence. Yeah. Of course, at that point in time, I could now hear the you know the wind and the going through the trees and all that stuff. So I had the hearing. And yeah. I heard the airman that I had discounted later. Earlier, I discounted him because he was just emotionless. When I yeah, was, yeah. I don't know, he's scared to death. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if it's, if it's, I call it that area that right around the craft, about 10 feet, what I call the bubble of influence because there was different influences on me at that time. And uh, I don't know. I don't really know what was going on. Anyway, here the branches break beside me. It's him. He is beside himself. Uh, he's going, here, you know, he says, Wow, he says, do you see that? Do you see that? And he says, it's over there now. I go, you can't see through. The, you couldn't see through the forest. It's too dark. It's too thick. And, um, I mean, you could look above you and see, and maybe 50 feet that way, but there's no way after something takes off you can see anything. And he takes off. <laughs> it, it reads like a horror movie. Uh, the, the whole well, scenario. Well, the last thing you I do. I being pretty scared. Yeah. The last thing, I don't care how scared you are, the last thing you do, you're trained. You don't take off by yourself. You're with your team member, your team leader. You stay with them. You don't break that, your team. That is a good point. That is a very good you point. You don't do it. I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like military basic 101 stuff. It's really stuff you did with crayons. And uh, he takes off. So I'm after him because I'm not going to break up the yeah. The, the, the team concept there and so we don't we don't go very far i mean maybe 30 feet 40 feet and then there's a double fence uh barbed wire jump that i'm following him jump that into a farmer's field he's running across it and i'm i still don't see anything and the farmer's field it was like the air temperature was cold it was like 31 32 degrees um and um the field must it had some you know ice in it and that but then it was some parts that was wet yet and i must have fell down like two or three times going across this field and i mean i'm wet now and uh trying to catch up with them i finally we passed these uh farmers houses at the end of the field i he finally stops and i'm thinking you know, I'm 26 years old, uh, but there's just no way I can, <laughs> you know, endure that kind of running. Yeah. And and I I get up beside him. I says, I said, what the hell are you doing? He says, I'm falling in the craft. I says, where? <laughs> and he goes over there, and he points in the opposite direction. And I'm, I says, where? 
And I still don't see them. We're out in the clearing, you know, we're out in the clearing area and that. And I said, I don't see any. And uh, I'm I'm not happy with them. Um, and he says, look down my arm. Okay. Well, that's fair enough. I'll look down your arm at it. And point, and he's pointing off in this far area, about five, six miles away. I says, do you know what you're pointing at? And he goes, yeah. He says, the craft. I said, that's a lighthouse. So that's where the White House part came in. And he put it in a statement. He put that okay. in a statement. And, yeah, well, I don't know what the hell he's doing. He's, I mean, there's no way you can mis- mistake what we've seen. He's right beside, you know, yeah, especially up feet close. away from yeah. And uh, <clears throat> anyway, he goes like, oh. And then over to the right, over in the Cape Green area of Rendlesham, that craft is sitting above the tree lake. They're upset. That's where it's sitting. So I'm going, well, it didn't go very far. It might, yeah. you know, that didn't go very far. And I was going to, you know, go ahead and say, well, we'll both go over to this one and we'll reinvestigate it. Okay. And I didn't, wasn't crazy about it. Believe me. Yeah. And I didn't even get that thought out to, to uh, even to say anything to him. And the craft starts moving slowly i say about 300 miles an hour which is slow you know right, in right. the sky uh out toward uh, the coastline out, you know headed that way and just it just disappeared uh out of sight and so we were we didn't talk really too much on the way in okay mainly because i was still upset and then i had the you know i I didn't know what, how he was going to report this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, it's not normal well, protocol. No, I said, this is a career ender. You know, I'm thinking that. And uh, he goes, well, he said, we're going to tell him about UFO. I said, no, you're not. And I said, I'm going to do talking. Yeah, not, yeah. You're an airman. Okay, I'm in charge. I'm doing the talking. Okay. So he finally shuts up about that. Um, we get back to the Eastgate. Uh, I get I ride back with the security guys. We are in a big bus, a metro. Um, he rides back the other way with the law enforcement patrolman. And on the way back, you know, on the, the back way from Woodbridge to Bentwaters, which only we use that area. I, uh, you know, I was looking at my notebook and, you know, I got the other security guys saying, okay, because they sing something to everybody, you know, there's no way that all those people stationed there couldn't, couldn't see it. I mean, like Berlino was saying, yeah, he says, what was that? And I, says, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. And, and, uh, anyway, I'm writing stuff down. I'm, you know, making sure I got some drawings on more drawings and, then I'm converting my notes. Uh, even though I was in the military for seven years, my my military time I was writing in, in civilian time, okay. And so I had to convert these uh, to military time. You know all the notes. And um, what I was going to have to do is write at 1569 when we got back in. What they do to give you a little background. Central Security Control, they have a blotter, chronological blotter, what happens in the events. But they're short entries, three or four lines at the most, maybe five. And they'll say, refer to the fifth Air Force Form 1569 Incident and Complaint Report. And that report 
is detailed. It can be a page long <coughs> or two. <coughs> Excuse me. Or two long. And uh, so I'm going to complete that. So I get there and um, I turn my weapon in. And Sergeant Chandler says, you know, he told me to turn my weapon in. He says, you got to go on the CSC for the 1569. Yeah. I said, oh, okay. He says, then the... Uh, uh, the captain wants to talk to you. The day shift commander. The, the lieutenant had already left. I guess he had he had a flight to catch, and so they he he got relieved early, which is odd too. Um, anyway, the the captain was there, and I went in the CSC, and I'm all ready to get right right uh, type out my fifteen sixteen. I says, uh, you got any blank forms or starting coffee? He goes, I've already completed it. I said, you completed the 15, 16. I said, how do you do that? He says, well, you didn't hear, you couldn't hear us, but we heard everything that you transmitted. I went, oh, okay. Yeah, I said, okay. So I read through it, compare it with a notebook. Times are all right. And... They heard it all, and the best part is, all our communications on that base are recorded at the wing command post on an old TI. No, at the time they're brand new TIEC reel-to-reels. That's how they would record the radio transmissions. You know what a reel-to-reel is? I have no it's idea. A tape, it's a tape, <laughs> tape for seventy-two hours, and um, there. So our radio transmissions are all. So everything was said is on that All tape. There. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so the 1569 is right. And, uh, you know, I go out and then the law enforcement guy's there uh, that was with me. And he had turned his weapon in. I said, well, you, you come in with, with me. Don't say a word. I'll do the talking. And uh, so sanitized it. Yeah. I used the term, and I thought this is brilliant uh, because. You can't use the term in the Air Force UFO. That that is a career ender. Yeah, yeah, especially back then. Yeah, uh, especially just, everything. Yeah, and so I, I, it was very accurate. The term I used came up with it was the craft of unknown or, origin. So, and yeah. it's, it's it's very descriptive, and it's true. And yeah, you know it's a craft. You just don't know where it came from. That's right. So. And so I reported to the captain, and I told him about the, you know, what happened. And he goes right to, well, I mean, obviously we know that's not a, uh, a known aircraft. So uh, Captain Verano says, "Well, you know, they, we don't have no way to report this." He says, uh, "You know, Blue Book uh, closed out in '69, man." He says, "I don't know how, how to report this up." I said, "Well, I, I initiated the." helping hand uh, and he goes yeah i know it was like that was a problem yeah yeah like oh man here we go he's, don't i said he's the one i want you to do he says i want you guys don't worry about this i'm going to take care of it of course he knows where the location is because i called an inter-control point where it was at and all that stuff so he knows that stuff he said i'm going to take care of it and uh this is off your shoulders so you know yeah yeah i'm not right. really do I really do that but i'm thinking that. I'm like, good. I said, that works for me. And um, 
so we're getting ready to go. Uh, the the airman lived about a block from me in Ipswich, and he had an apartment or something down there, and I I had a house down there. And, uh, I was giving him a ride back and forth because he couldn't make it to work <laughs> on time. So the flight chief had asked me to give him rides back and forth. It's a long story. And um, anyway, he says, you know, I had to run by the base photo ride. I told him that. Uh, so I had to drop the film off. Did that. Said that. And did a work order on it. He says, we got to go back. He says, and look at this in the daylight. Oh, I says, no, we don't, I don't know if we should do that. You know, I really don't. Yeah, they, they already said to, to basically leave it alone and stop worrying about it. He said, oh, he was like, he was like nagging. Uh, okay, we'll do that. Not a problem. And so we did. And uh, then we walked back out there and I hear him hollering and he's over here, Sergeant Pennison. And I said, what's up? He's, and he's at the landing area. And he says, look, and there's the three impressions in the ground. I says, yeah. I says, uh, and I'm thinking, oh, hell, you didn't see that the, during the encounter? Yeah. You know, uh, uh, you know, I thought that was odd. And uh, he says, yeah, I, said, I know. I says, it made impressions. And, of course, they had broken all the branches off when it left and everything else. Yeah, so... Uh, um, I went back to town. Uh, I went to my landlord, who is a, like a handyman, interior director, or something like that. And I said, I really, because I really didn't think that's, this is not going to work well with the Air Force. I think they're going to, it's all going to be shoved underneath the table. Yep. Uh, but I, ha I have to have something that, um, some type of, uh, concrete stuff for myself yeah, for me yeah just just to, to make sure you aren't crazy and i says uh yeah and i said about impressions of the ground he said, oh he said want to do plaster paris yeah so he mixes this stuff up up he puts it in a plastic bag and he says all you gotta do is let it sit for about 25 minutes he says it's pretty thick. He says on the way out, keep it squeezing it so it doesn't set up. He says, Give me all kinds of instructions. I went okay, you know. And uh, I get out back out there, and I got a backpack. And I um, actually it was an Alice pack. It wasn't a backpack. It was actually a military one. But um, I get there, I set it. So I pour the uh, plaster of Paris and the three impressions. I um, at the time I smoked. At time, so it was three cigarettes. That's about <laughs> thirty minutes, I guess. And <clears throat> I pulled them up, and they were still sort of wet, and, but they were they were fairly solid. I put them in the backpack, and I'll be damned. I'm leaving, and I'm not, I'm not even. I'm pretty close to my car, and who do I run into? But the deputy uh, squadron commander, Major Dury, Captain Verano, who told me to go home. <laughs> And, the last uh, week we expected. Yeah, and Master Sergeant Gulley is the day flight chief. And Drury says to me, what are you doing out here? I thought you were told to go home. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, I was like, yeah, you know what? I just wanted to take a look out here. And he says, go home. He says, we got this. You know, I don't know. Like that, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, okay, that's all you're going to do. I'm thinking, I, because I, I disobeyed the order, you know. 
yeah. I'm like, okay, so like, that's cool. So uh, I'm so hyped up that day, I can't sleep. I can't sleep after a minute. I, I, I mean, I try, I lay down. I'm, uh, I keep seeing those ones and zeros. And finally, um, it's about, oh, I would say that night, maybe 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night, I still haven't slept for that midnight shift. And, uh, you know, I tried laying down. I, I could see these ones and zeros. I mean, it's driving me crazy. Yeah. I'm going, okay, this is great. I said, it's trauma. It's got to be trauma from this event. Okay, now, what do you do, Jim? What options do you have? Well, you don't go to the base hospital. Where do you start? Yeah, you can't you, tell a doctor, hey, I'm... I'm I have a contact with a craft unknown origin. I uh, uh, see a bright light. I had ones and zeros. Uh, career gone. Yeah, you're going right to the psych ward. Right yeah, it's, it's done. Weapons card pulled. I mean, it's done. And uh, at that time, I was going to make a career at the Air Force, which I did. So anyway, so I'm not going to sleep anyway. So here I am like midnight and I make a pot of coffee. I go in the dining room and uh, I'm drinking that coffee and I go over to, I don't know how it is, but when we got home uh, off shift, we throw our notebooks and our restricted area badges all on one table or something like that. And that's where they were. So I pick up the notebook. And so I'm looking through this because now I'm wondering, I said, this all happen or <laughs> what's going on? Was, well, no, that's, there's my times I was out there. Yeah, everything's correct. And then I said, you know what? I think I can write those ones and zeros down. You know, it's like in a mind's eye. So I flipped to the, you know, the back part of the notebook. That's the only paper I had grabbed a pen and you know and i i could see through this mind's eye go okay i think i write those down zero one 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 zero zero one one zero i said yeah so i started writing it down and i would have stopped but after writing a couple lines i felt so good it alleviated uh, the, the feeling, I guess. It felt so good. It felt great. So, oh, here I am. I'm, I mean, I got to the point, like, I was in two or three pages in the, in the notebook uh, writing these down. And, you know, how you get pens that you pick up in a drawer. Not all of them work long. Well, yeah. that's uh, here I am, and I'm panicking, looking for, you know, uh, another pen that works. Trying to get this all out. And I did. And I wherever I left off, I started again. And I wrote uh, in the book, uh, notebook, maybe uh, 16 pages. Not a lot, because the notebook's only, you know, small. Oh, okay, like a notepad. Yeah, it's by, you know, yeah, you have to have it in your pocket and that. So uh, so I wrote it all out, and then all of a sudden I didn't see the ones and zeros no more. And I felt pretty good, and I says, wow, I said, I think I dodged a bullet on that one. I don't have to go yeah. to the hospital because the hospital yeah. is the only other thing I, I was really considering that. And uh, <clears throat> so I said, like, great. So that was the insanity. That was the trauma afterwards. And no, I didn't tell anybody about that. <laughs> I, Nobody. I can imagine. I, I don't think I would. So, I, not I, my I, finest moment. No. Yeah. And because the next morning when I got up, I was fine. 
uh, also. And I said, great. So that's fine with me. And then I get a call uh, that Sunday night uh, from the uh, the guy that works in the orderly room where the commander is and that for the squadron. And he says, uh, I had an appointment the following day at AFOSI, Air Force Special Investigations. Oh, my shit. Okay, I got to go through this and tell these people this shit again, you know? Yeah. And um, fine. So I get a hold of Burles, and I says, you know, we got to go in early. I got an appointment there. He says, yeah, I got stuff to do, too. And Okay. So we go on in. I drop him off. I go on the OSI building. I know, by the way, I know all the agents. There's nine of them. I mean... And they said, well, yeah, we got a couple guys who want to talk to you about this. And, okay. So I go on in there, and they give me a, you know, the legal pads, the yellow ones, the long ones? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he says, uh, he says you want this to go away? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I want it to go away. He says, write down everything that happened. He says, and it goes away. Okay. Yeah. He said, yeah, we're conducting an investigation. He says, our investigation is separate than the base. No one knows what we're doing. He says, uh, we informed the wing commander. He says that we're doing an investigation. That's all they're required to do. Because they don't work for anybody on the base. That was the thing. You know, the, At the time, uh, OSI worked for the State Department in London over there. That's the way it was set up. I said, okay, so... Uh, I I complete the four pages. I did everything. Page one of four, and I do all that stuff, and uh, I sign it. Uh, and I, he said, well, "We're going to have to type this up." And he says, so "Just chill out." He says, "Have a coke or something." So we'll be back. And about fifteen minutes later, they come on back, and uh, they got they got typed out, but you know, a bond paper. But they only got like single lines. It's only that long. There's no way that, that they wrote everything I wrote down. And I looked at it and I says, "This isn't what I gave you." And he says, "This is what you're going to tell everybody happened." Full cover up. Yeah, and I was really glad I got the impressions at that point at the from the site because I said, okay. Yeah, that means yeah. that means Mike will pick out the pictures. I'm not going to have no pictures either. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. So did, did any of the pictures from that incident ever get released that you took on the film All camera? All white. All, All That's white. what I figured. Yeah, and I I I've thought for years that you know there was some kind of contamination with them. You know, there something was done. Um, in Monroe Neville's, the staff sergeant that uh, from disaster preparedness that Colonel Conrad sit out there that morning that I'm doing all these other things <laughs> um, to investigate it. I mean, he sent sent them out to investigate, do radiation samples, all, everything else. This is way before Halt was ever involved or anything oh, like that. Right. It's investigation. Yeah. Well, can you blame the base commander? I mean, he, that's oh. what he... You know. but, here's the thing. but here's the thing I do know. I know that OSI is doing investigation. They told me because I was there. Then I find out that Colonel Conrad's doing one. The base commander, that's two investigations. Well, this this is not going to end good either. You know, there's a lot of room for error. 
And, uh, uh, but Monroe Nevels was there all day in, along with Lieutenant England, the, well, one of the uh, flight commanders. And they, I mean, the radiation was beta radiation. It was 100, got to get that right. It was 100 times higher than background. Okay. So it was and, anomalous. It wasn't supposed to be like that. No, and uh, you know, uh, I got, and that's why the craft was warm to touch. It wasn't because yeah. of you know, from, from flight or nothing. It was because it was hot. I mean, uh, it was radioactive, and that did worry me. And well, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so. Uh, after we leave, uh, oh, they said memorize that statement. I did, and here I'll tell you what's how so screwed up, huh? you know, in the, you know, the Air Force, how brilliant they are. The statement I read, I'm reading it like the word color is spelled different, like British color, C O O U R or something like that. It's spelled different, and they had British terms in there that I, don't, that I never use. And the other thing, yeah. you had. They had it in meters. I don't use meters. I use yards. You know, yeah. they had that, and they kept it down to a very generic. Uh, in there, I seen a, uh, a a mechanical object. That's what they said in there. And they said, "This is the story you tell." I said, "Well, I'm supposed to go see the base commander after this." Well, that's the story you tell him. Okay. And because he says ongoing investigation, that's your orders. Okay. So we, I get done with the, the photo lab. Um, no, not the, not the photo lab on the wrong day. Anyway, I, I go to pick up Burroughs and I don't know where he was at. He was over at the base exchange or something. I pick him up. I said, we got to go to the base commander's uh, office. They want to talk about what happened. I says, don't you say anything unless they ask you a specific question. <laughs> you, know what I mean? you know what I mean? It's bad. Yeah, that's right. And um, so we go in there. Uh, we meet with the deputy base commander. That's Colonel Hall. And he puts us in separate ends of the conference table. And he says, write out statements. So I write the statement that OSI says. Yeah, what they told you to say, yeah. yeah that's fine. And I, you know, drew my pictures. They didn't say anything about the pictures, so those were accurate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and then the, the law enforcement guy did the same thing. He drew a triangular craft and had different lights on it. And uh, they started asking questions, and Hall, Colonel Hall started asking Burroughs questions. You know, he said, yeah, it was, a, it was an object, and he says, and he started going into it. And I said, uh, well, you got our statements, you know, because what he's saying is countering what the OSI told me to. Yeah. 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 And so he says, well, he says, um, Colonel Hall says, we got to talk to the base commander and the wing commander. I went, wing commander too? Yeah. yeah, he says, Colonel Williams and um, Colonel Conrad. Okay. And so the, we go on in there, report. 
Colonel Conrad and Colonel Halt sit off in side chairs. I report in for Colonel Williams. And I told him the overlay of what happened, sanitized, of course. Yeah. Uh, the OSI version. And the, the odd thing is, he doesn't ask one question. He says, we got this. Don't worry. He said, we'll take care of this. I really appreciate you coming in and talking to me about it. And I said, I got out of there, and I was like, man, no questions. I'd have a lot of questions. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. And uh, then I find out you know, later that, you know, he briefs Third Air Force. So, yeah, there's a lot going on just that we didn't know what was going on yeah, at the time. Yeah, a lot of background work and different investigations, agencies, and everything. Right. And one of the other things is, like, like, Burroughs left six months later, ro rotated back to the States, and most people did. I think Coffee did. Uh, but I was there. I had full three, three and a half more years there, uh, yeah. part of my assignment, four-year assignment. Colonel Halt had the same. So during that time, I mean, I don't know how many meetings I had. But I, mean, I had the top-secret clearance. I got promoted, too, by the way. I got promoted uh, – from there, uh, that's a strange story. It's in detail in the book. I'm not going to go through all of it. It would take hours. And just uh, a heads up, everybody, I will put all the links to the Rendlesham Enigma book that he's talking about in the description of the video and in the podcast here on Spotify. So you guys will be able to click this link to go check out his book and, and read it for yourself. Do you have any questions? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. My bad. I, I, was... tons. I, I gave you, I gave you a per, way too detailed. I mean, well, but if you I, get into I the book part, you're gonna, you're gonna see everything from, um, you know, the incident itself to the cover-up story, and we had a cover-up story from OSI. How it played into the third night when Colonel Halt went out there after with. Uh, uh, Monroe Neville's when he came back in the officers' club, he, they go back out, and so that played into it. And said, "Oh wow, we can call it yeah, another UFO sighting," you know. Yeah. And you know, you know how they are treated in the Air Force, you know. And yeah. So, I guess my next question would be, what what inspired you to come forward, or when did this all come fully public and and everything and get to the public's eye? Well, I couldn't talk about it because it was top secret at the time. Um, I couldn't, well, all the time I was serving, you know, to finish out my career, I couldn't talk about it. Doesn't mean it wasn't being talked about. I mean, I, yeah. I, go, I go to other bases and all of a sudden they said, oh, you're in England? Hey, you ever hear about that that UFO incident? So it's like it's like low-key, everybody kind of knows. I it. don't know. You didn't hear it? Uh, I, anything to avoid questions, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, that happened a lot. There's some more detail into it uh, about how um, later with this book coming out, how there's confirmation about the uh, up-channel report. I go into about my lifeline that the Air Force gave me, uh, the colonel that was sent. Uh, there's there's a lot of detail in there because uh, it just was never uh, put out. The main thing, I, so I couldn't talk about till '93. I re I retired in '93, November. Two weeks later, um, because I'm talking to my. Oh yeah, by the way, 
it's no longer top secret in 93 because yeah. one of the things I asked for is if it's still classified when I did the non-disclosure stuff, you know, about nuclear weapons, this, that, the other, classified plans. And uh, <clears throat> it came back, said nothing happened classified on that date at that base. So, wow. okay, okay, I'm on. Uh, Colonel Halt told me to do that. <laughs> he he retired a year earlier than I did, maybe a year and a half. He says, get him to go ahead and say nothing happened. You know, nothing's yeah. classified. He says, that's what I do. I went, oh, and I did, and it worked. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, so you could talk about it. But two weeks after I got out in November of 93, uh, I'm working. I got a job as a vice president of a security operations place. And uh, my boss says, hey, you want to talk to the Pilots Association about this? Because something came up about this uh, a little while ago. Yeah, I'll talk about it. So I went and did a presentation on it there. And by God, you know, pilots, I had all, I mean, I had people from uh, airlines and stuff there. I mean, like United Airlines and that. And um, they all had similar type of stuff they can explain. And so, yeah, so. That was actually when I went public uh, in late November of 93. Then okay. about uh, six, seven months later, Colonel Halt called me up and says, we got to do this documentary in England. I said, what? I don't want to do that. And he goes, yeah, we got to. He says, some guy's putting out a book or something. And he wasn't there. I says, he told me the guy's name, so I, didn't, I never heard of him at the time. I said, okay, so we'll go over. He gets a hold of uh, the law enforcement guy to uh, Burroughs, and we all fly over there, and we do a documentary called, what was it called? It was Strange But True television show. Okay. And, and, that was um, the first public airing of the, the Rendlesham incident. Well, the, by the witnesses, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And uh, and um, of course, I'll tell you what, that's my first lesson about documentaries. Yeah. Uh, uh, I had a notebook at the time there, and I I said, well, I said, what about the stuff here and, and with the you know the drawings and the, and the guy goes, yeah, that's interesting. He said, but the storyboards are already done, and we said we're going to do this, and uh, okay. I said, okay, and then, you know, things like, you know, the size. I don't want you saying it was nine feet. I want you to say it was the size of the tank. I said, well, what size is the tank? I've never seen a tank. Yeah, you're, they're sprucing it up. Said, for, for you were in the military? Yeah. you never seen a tank? Uh, no, I was in the Air Force. Air so, Force, air, yeah. i never seen a yeah. tank. You got airplanes. Said, you know, you use the word tank. And so they got you to change stuff. And, you know, yeah. it's just I just didn't really, I wasn't aware really what I was doing. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, and but I knew that at that point that uh, documentaries, uh, the best part of them are on the cutting room floor. I mean, yeah, they, they leave a lot out. They the same with my my previous interviews uh, with Tom Reed and Melanie Kirchdorfer, many documentaries and TV series featuring them, and there's only a fraction of the stuff that gets let out or it gets it gets shined up a little bit to to fit the the proper audience for them. Exactly. Yeah, they got their own motivation, make money. I mean, yep. that's that's it. Uh, that's it. Sell it the highest bidder in it. And the thing is, is uh, when they do that, uh, uh, it 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 changes the what you know the facts. 
the Giants. Yeah, thanks a lot. And anyway, so uh, I started doing a few of them. We we had different book projects. I go into oh sorry, do I do that by detail in the uh, in the book on what we do. Um, I don't. I did a lot of documentaries. So, yeah. and you know, none luckily, of them, none uh, of them are none of them are right. None of them are. Luckily, right. you're here where we don't make any money, so we just care about the story. <laughs> well, that's the way to do it. I mean, uh, you know, if people are making money off an incident that happened like that, you should question it right away. What's going on there? Yeah. You yeah. Know, uh, by the way, I have never uh, kept uh, any honorariums, any. Um, uh, book proceeds, uh, appearances, all that, ever since the first show in 93, have all went to charity. I have several charities, nice. all the money. Well, <laughs> think about this, Mike. Would you want to make money off this? That is a good really? point. It would probably throw the, the credibility of it a little bit off. I, I didn't really well, think about it like that, but it, it, it well, makes sense. Well, I... Everybody I, 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 I credibility. <laughs> more esoterically i look at it like well it happened at christmas time it was a gift because of what's coming in the second book on the code and i went no nah, you can't make money off this stuff this yeah stuff. yeah Mm-mm. and and actually it works out good because you get to support a lot of I you know I don't have a lot of charities but there's certain ones I use but that's that's one of the things you know I now I, I and I don't expect anybody like with the Reynolds from Enigma book I don't expect anybody to think that book's going to convince you I'm not trying to convince you of nothing yeah. I could what just tell them what, what you happened saw, your point of view everything but what we wanted to do and my co-writer uh, Gary Osborne what we wanted and I wanted is that. We do a book, and then we use chapter endnotes, evidentiary endnotes, to back up everything I'm saying. I mean, that's the kind of book that you want to read. A book yeah. saying, oh, why, don't take my word for it. Here's, here's why, and here's what happened. And here's the witnesses. Here's the other statements. Here's the physical evidence. That's why we did everything the book. Everything collaborates together. It makes sense. Yeah, and, and you know... Uh, yeah, the book's 702 pages, uh, and, I, and of that 702 pages, 300 are evidentiary chapter endnotes. End and you can see this thing is like... It's thick. A pretty, it's a, a pretty thick book. And, uh, yeah, it was hard to get... Uh, we had to cut that book down a lot. That was part of it. that We wanted to put everything from... Uh, uh, Gary's work on the uh, his research with the code, his discoveries and his theories in this book, but have been fifteen hundred pages. Yeah, that would have been huge. It no, been yeah, no, who's going to read that? It's hard. It's hard enough here to read seven hundred two pages. Uh, and there's, you know, some people say, well, it's a little harsh. Hey, it's the truth. That's why. You want, to, I mean, you want to know every detail and everything that happened, I would definitely recommend reading the yeah, book for sure. Well, some of the things like, they say, well, you're a little bit harsh on the uh, on the uh, airman that was with you. I says, yeah. I says, you know, the verbiage for that, for that I says, came out from a 1994 um, uh, hypnosis regression. And it's all on tape. That's what we did. That's what we used. What was 
they, she, uh, the psychologist asked me, what are you thinking about this? What's going on in your mind right now? And I, and I had those yeah. thoughts about him. That's that first-person point of view. Yeah, and the other thing is that hypnosis session wasn't because wasn't with uh, ufology people. Okay, that's the last thing. You do. If you go in and get hypnosis, don't do it with anybody. Yeah, somebody that think, caters to UFOs. Yeah. Yeah, I actually had went into my regular uh, MD because I couldn't sleep in '94. I think because I revisited, you know, yeah. going back over right. there. Oh. Anyway, um, I wasn't sleeping at night. Got to the point where I was only sleeping like a couple hours a night. <laughs> you can't function. Uh, I couldn't function as a, you know, as a, uh, as a manager at all at work. It was really bad. So um, I went in, and she says, you know, there's not a lot I can do as a MD. She says, but would you take a referral to a psychiatrist? Uh, anybody? Okay, I got, I got to be able to sleep. And so she did. And so this this has nothing to do with ufology or just yeah. like. It's medical therapy. Yeah. yeah, you know, so everything's happening. Everything I'm telling you is covered under HIPAA too, but you can use it. <laughs> and I went to this, this psychologist or the, the um, psychiatrist, and she, um, I, I might have had five or six. It's in the book in detail, but I had a five or six sessions with her, and she's the one I wanted. So maybe you should do a you know hypnosis regression, and so. So we did, and I go into detail in the book about that. And uh, I'll tell you what, the, those are the days when people didn't sue each other back in 94. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she gave me her Super 8. She filmed them, the whole uh, sessions, two of them, um, with this uh, hypnosis uh, sessions that she did. And... Um, so she just gave them to me. So they're my notes. She's, but you can have them. Right. So that's that really helped in writing the book, uh, as far as yeah. uh, dialogue and see if it backed up actual testimony and see if it backed up memory Absolutely. and all this. Yeah. So all of it did, and uh, nice. so I don't want to get into too much, but all that's in the book. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. you definitely got to check it out. So uh, before we finish up, that's a. a amazing amount of information you told us here and i i appreciate it um i actually have some questions from some viewers on facebook that i, I put together i made some posts asking if you could ask jim peniston one question what would it be so i have about five questions here i'm going to ask you from viewers and you can answer them however you like um well, hopefully we'll i know the answers <laughs> yeah yeah we'll see we'll see so uh christine smith asks how long do you believe that humans have known about aliens what is the what is the earliest evidence or incident you believe in personally or if you even do believe in some of them personally these aren't aliens you don't think so okay 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 no uh uh by our research and uh by even what was in the hypnosis sessions and um our research, especially uh, this, these, we have we started out with the theory that, and and that they're us from the future. Yeah. And, oh, uh, yeah, and everything that we uh, confirmed conf or finds when we find things out confirm that is the course 
of what 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 it is. Yeah, the other was, thing is in the hypnosis. Is, I don't want to bust her bubble on this one. In that hypnosis, <laughs> it's it's I I talk about uh, even in the future, eight thousand years, they're still waiting for first contact. Huh? There's a reason why they've been traveling. Going back through time, I mean, to the Egyptian times, to there's a reason why they're doing that. All that's coming out in the second book. Okay. And uh, I wanted it separate because I, this here is actually the first book is exactly the way everything happened, and 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 up through about 2014. And Gary, with the length of the book, and then he says he's going to write a separate one, which is great. And they'll go into all that kind of stuff like that. But uh, no, there's zero proof of alien encounters. There's another thing that uh, uh, the CIA is involved with this. There's contact. It's in the book. Uh, recently with me is 2015. And uh, uh, one of the things that they said that, that this phenomena, this, uh, these, these travelers, they have the ability, depending on how close you are to it, to go ahead. Whatever your mind's prone to thinking, you'll see. They can make you think it. Interesting. I actually am really glad I asked that question because that was not the answer I was expecting. And that actually opens up my mind on this a little bit more. Um, now, it doesn't mean that you can't find it, you know, because I think it's possible, and so does Gary, my co-author, along with other scientists uh, that are confirming this our same beliefs uh we do have academia behind us on this by the way yeah uh but this, they think that uh, uh, that craft you know i thought was uh, was unmanned a drone we didn't have drones back then but a drone yeah. uh mainly because and this is the this is the theory that's been presented they can't Human, be human beings, corporeal type human beings cannot do the, the, what it takes to do this interdimensional travel, what, time travel. You cannot do that. Uh, it's just too rough an experience. I mean, you won't survive it. So what they do is they send back ships, and they also send back EBEs, a, a biological manufactured unit. Maybe, okay. maybe grays or yeah, think, yeah. yeah, that they can survive the ability to, uh, you know, to Make transverse, yeah, transverse, uh, you know, interdimensional travel. That's really what time travel is. Time yeah. travel is that term is Hollywood. I mean, it's uh, H.G. Wells, but what it is is interdimensional travel. And uh, we talk about this in the last chapter, uh, Gary. Uh, the epilogue, he does, and the epilogue's like 40-some pages long, 50 pages long. That is the introduction into the second book and his research. Okay. And it's, um, I mean, as Gary says, the math does not lie. Yeah. It's, just, it's math. You, you can't distort it. You can't change it. It is what it there. is. It's a system. And it's, yes. So, good question. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I, I really like that. Thank you, Christine Smith, for actually asking that. So, um, we're going to go over to Richard Hellwell. I hope I'm saying that right. 
Um, he asked, did he or anyone else suffer from radiation poisoning or when anyone else who might have touched the object get any visions or still get flashbacks? And I think you kind of already answered that. Uh, well, I guess, no, we have, uh, I mean, it's post-traumatic stress, yeah, that we have that. I mean, but, yeah. uh, radiation, no well, I'll tell you what, if, uh, if I've had any type of radiation, which it, it couldn't have been lasting too long, uh, because no Neville's had the same exposure, uh, e even though it was after the fact. He's right at the landing area. That's the only place the radiation was, right underneath the craft. Um, no, uh, I tell you what, it's what's odd, and I, I hate to I hate to say this, but my health has been pretty much perfect. Like, um, I can't remember I, last time I had ever had a cold. Uh, yeah. I don't know when. I don't know when. I uh, flu. Uh, I've had it twice in my lifetime. Uh, well, maybe it gave you a little extra immunity. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, all I know is that uh, no, no. The last time I had flu was like uh, ninety ninety five. Yeah. <laughs> I just well, I just just don't touch your face. Keep your hands yeah. clean. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, could be that you, too. Maybe could be you that. don't ever need the COVID vaccine. Maybe you already got it back then. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I, no, I'm not going to gamble that. I would, I'm I not going. No, I'm not going to test it. No, no, no. <laughs> so, um, our last question comes from Robert. Uh, actually, there's one more question after this. Robert Chisholm. He said, "I would like to know what he was thinking the day after it happened and how it changed his view on life." Well, the, that's varied what happened. I mean, from worrying about the the trauma and all that, getting by that. There was no doubt at, the, at that point in time. See, even from that point, that point of writing reports and all that other stuff, I never, ever, ever used the word UFO or alien. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's always, uh, because I don't know. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, I didn't at the moment and, you know, but the evidence is building up to back up what I said, but, yeah. uh, like, I think I touched on it about the money part. I consider this is a gift. Yeah. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. Around yeah. Christmas time. And, uh, I'm not going to go ahead and squander it. I'm just going to go ahead. And I think uh, it's meant to be that I was supposed to, uh, um, like I said to, with Gary, is they have that, to do that book. And we did that book because of all the misinformation that's out yeah. there. I was and say, what you said kind of sums up his, his question um, with everything. So it, it kind of sums it up all together. I would imagine no matter what, it would be that life-changing experience, but everything that adds up together, I'm sure probably gave you a, a different opinion later on than what it was the same day and, and everything else together. Accurately said. Yes. Yeah. So um, our last question is actually from a good friend who follows my channel. One of my, my bigger uh, supporters, I would say is Aturo Kahlo asks, is it a common occurrence for UFOs to be seen around military installations there being two air force installations there one for the raf and one occupied by the u.s i believe my question would be why does he think that they actually landed for 
I mean, they can see what they need to see from the sky, I imagine. So landing has to have a purpose and a good one for them to put themselves in danger of being shot at by the military. I'm assuming they can die like the rest of us. So what would be your, your answer to him about that? The Reynolds from Forest incident is not about me. It's not about anything like with what he's describing. What, what it's about is the, uh, uh, the Reynolds from message, the code. That's what it's about. And the only way to give that code was to have physical contact. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hey, that's actually a good point. Because that is how hey, it's just you, think. If you're a time, time traveler, you can go you can go back to any point in time knowing you're going to meet whoever you need to meet. And not to mention it's unmanned. So somebody couldn't step out and tell you, hey, Jim, I wanted you to see this. This is what you need to know. Write this down. So it's got to be the, the right. code has to be transpired somehow. Yeah, it's like the the light obviously was a message it is a way of uh, corresponding communication it was was it intentional i would say probably I mean, yeah for sure yeah and everything that we're doing now it backs it up and i would like to give all the um, academia that has that's a strange part of this um I mean, they're university professors and all this other stuff. And, and you know, they, they tell you their, their theories. They tell their uh, the physics part of it and all this stuff to us. And I said, well, can I go public with that? Oh, no, 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 we don't want our name to go out. He says, I, he says, I, I get, for example, this one in London, <laughs> at Cambridge University. He says, I get grants in that area. He says, I, I can't go into that. I want to keep getting the grants. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, one of the people that have uh, came uh, public on it is a uh, physicist as uh, Jack Safardi. Uh, he's a uh, from San Francisco, I think, and he was originally part of the SRI out of Stanford and a lot of other things. He's uh, he's actually tied in to what happened at Rendlesham, the mechanics of it with Tic Tac, yeah, so, and the, and the uh, how it works uh and he also believes that they're us from the future they're travelers yeah uh, he says the technology is uh look at this very simply like okay why would it be a triangular craft because we have them nowadays now why would it have markings on it oh because we mark our aircraft that way i mean why is it in english (laughs) all this supports well that's because that's what they are. Yeah. That's what they know. Um, these are these are some things that are going to be in the uh, second book, and I'm yeah, not plugging the, I'm not plugging the second book hard because uh, uh, the last thing I want to do is rush uh, my co-author Gary into it. Uh, I mean, we spent five years on on the Reynolds from Enigma. I mean, there's no rushing there. I mean, yeah. we want to make sure it was right. Um, yeah, it's probably an, uh, not a book for everybody, but uh, the book is uh, uh, it puts all the facts so you have the facts in front of you and you can make up your own decision. That's all we ask, you know, to read it yeah. and make your own decision. You might say, oh, they're crazy or whatever. I don't care. It's at least we uh, presented the facts to you in, uh, um, in a coherent uh, way. And can't ask anything more than that. Yeah. Can you, don't you have any more questions? That was uh, it. 
I, I think that's it for right now, but uh, I'm not going to lie. I would I would definitely be willing to do a part two of this and maybe have you on in the future <laughs> again to, to go with more details. But uh, it, it's been amazing. I think we're about running out of time, but uh, I got, it's, it's been an honor, Jim, and I, I really appreciate you coming out and coming on the show and, and clearing some of this up. Yes, Mike, and I'm sorry to talk so much. I, I really wanted to have more of an exchange uh you know with questions and that but maybe we can do that uh more questions and answers and yeah, q a video or, or something yeah. like that. i'd love to man i would love to yeah that sounds like a lot of fun hey For this sure. is, this this has been interesting i'll give you that uh you've asked questions that haven't been asked before. I appreciate I that. Appreciate it. I, I did a little bit of research. So uh, that's it for today, guys. Thank you so much again, Jim, for coming on. We are going to put all of his links to his book uh, in the description of the video or the podcast you're listening to now. So make sure you check out that description to check out his books. And thanks for watching, everybody. Mm -hmm.